Hi, everyone. This is Ranching Reboot with Red Hills Rancher and your favorite host, CK. We have Matt Kincaid with Kincaid Farms, who also won Young Regenerative Farmer of the Year. So congratulations, Matt. We're so happy to have you on. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Mac, you've got some other news uh, from your personal life. And, you know, I understand it'll be, you know, three weeks or more before we air this. But is there something else that happened last week you want to share? Yeah, just had a just had another kid. Uh, that's been <laughs> that's been fun. No sleep and, and running off practically zero. But, hey, I'm still functioning, you know, just barely, though. Well, that's Congratulations. That's Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So start off, tell us your story. Tell us your history. Tell us your education and uh, tell us about you. Okay. So I breezed through high school and decided I didn't want to go anywhere after that. So I, uh, I kind of got my, I kind of got started farming. Uh, after my dad passed away, he passed away from cancer and I inherited 60 acres. So I kind of got a boost at the beginning. Um, but currently my farm is around 650 acres of row crop. And I run around 80 cow-calf pairs a year, kind of give or take, you know, if I have to cull some things off or something. And I also run a lot of, I do a lot of custom grazing. So that adds about another 50 or 60 animals per year on the farm. Um, and a lot of that custom grazing is mostly on just like annuals, like warm season annuals or cool season annuals and cover crops. And so it's a great way to have pretty good cash flow. But uh, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, that's just kind of how I got started. I Dad passed away, I inherited some acres, and I just took some risks where I thought I, I could make them, you know, justify them. And uh, I, I, I've done that, I guess. I mean, you know, the farm payments, <laughs> they don't ever stop, you know. So year in and year out, you know, it's kind of a big chunk of money. But I'm proud to say last year, my wife and I paid off our first farm. And, um, and we just got a couple more to knock out. That's huge. So really, we're trying to tell stories about how to get started. So. How did you acquire some of these initial resources and, you know, land and, and cattle and capital to, to go from what you had to where you are? Okay. So uh, working a full-time job on my farm side, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I, I ran a full-time job. My uncle, my grandfather, they're pretty large uh, farmers. So from the time I was 14, you know, I was on a tractor. I mean, I was driving a truck or whatever, you know, whatever they wanted me to do when I was 14 on. And my grandpa come knock on my window, wake me up. I, my mom and dad only lived about a mile away from my grandparents. So, I, like I said, I worked full time for them. And their farm is very conventional. You know, it's a lot of tillage and, and, and you know, a lot of chemical use. And they have cattle, too, but they treat their cattle. They, they feed their cattle instead of their cattle feeding them. You know, they're always, they start feeding hay in October and stop maybe in, like, beginning May. So, we're in southwest Missouri. <laughs> You know, we got a long growing season, so that, you know, that's, that's not how I do my operation. Um, how I got the capital? Well, I guess, you know, long story short, you know, I did, I did inherit. My dad, uh, he wasn't a farmer. He's a truck driver. So he had a 2008 Challenger, which, you know, was a pretty nice car, and I didn't need it. So I sold that, and really that little bit of money, I think it was like 20 some thousand. That's kind of what got me started. I started off with zero equipment, you know, zero cattle. <laughs> All I had was 60 acres and just a dream. And I just kept rolling with it. It's, it was a lot of, it was a lot of thought for us process. I don't feel like I'm probably necessarily the best worker in the world. Like when it comes to like labor, you know, I'm like, Oh, this sucks. But 
you know, I just keep my nose down and just keep going. I would rather outthink my problems and physically work my problems. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of things. Working I mean, smarter, not harder. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Smarter, yeah. not harder. That's why I use that a lot, actually. Um, I just look for ways to save money. I mean, let's take my cattle, for example. Okay, I didn't own a tractor and a loader. So that's why I started bail grazing. Okay. So I've, I got a neighbor who has a tractor and baler, and he charges me $1 per bale to set him out. So like last year, I fed 80 bales a day. That's all I fed, which this year will be less than that. But I was pretty happy that I accomplished it last year. So it cost me 80 bucks per bale to feed the hay, and then the, the hay was about 30 bucks a bale. And it wasn't really great quality hay, but it was good enough for my cows, you know. Um, so, yeah, really just, you know, finding ways to save on expenses. On my cattle herd, I've never warmed a cow or even vaccinated a calf or nothing. I just, I don't, you know, do black leg shots. I've never lost any because of that. Most times if I lose a calf, it was from something like I couldn't control, I feel like, you know, whether it was, oh, the calf come backwards or heifer had problem or whatever might be the case. I just, I just try to keep my expenses low. You can't control how much you're going to make. You can only control how much you're going to spend. And I really take that to heart you got to make your farm work economically if you're going to try to make it work, you know? I like that. That was a great quote. You can't control how much you make, but you can control how much you spend. So, <laughs> Write talk that a little down. bit more about bale grazing. So why do you bale graze and on, on what type of land are you doing bale grazing? Okay, so the bale grazing always takes place on perennial pastures. And so there's some really good pointers to this. Number one, your time is worth something. So let's say hypothetically you have your tractor paid off and you go and feed a bale of hay every year. Well, you're always putting that money back aside to buy the next tractor, the next hay bale, or the next whatever if you put up hay. I buy all my hay. I don't have all that extra equipment expense because to me it doesn't justify on the size of my farm to buy hay equipment. It just doesn't make sense. So when I said it takes about 15 seconds a day to feed a bale of hay, I'm not exaggerating. Literally, I just take the poly wire, I go up to the bale of hay, I lift it over each bale each day. So, uh, you know, I mean, all our buddies come out there like, hey, you want to help me feed hay? And like, oh, yeah, sure. So they think we're going to get in the pickup and go feed a bale of hay. We'll walk out my pasture on foot, grab the poly wire and the post, lift it up over the bale. And my cow's got a bale for the day. Um, <laughs> it's really that simple. You know, I mean, I, it's not too, it's not too, you know, technical or whatever. It's but always I mean, fun when somebody challenges you at the coffee shop or the restaurant or the co-op and say, well, <laughs> I don't know how you do that. I don't have time to move my cows every day. And you just, you know, how do you explain <laughs> to them that it takes a couple of minutes? Well, I mean, so yeah, your original setup on bell grazing, if we're talking about that, it, it doesn't take long. You just put up, it's just one poly wire for me because I have a back fence and water's on the back side of the fence. So literally, like I said, I'm just lifting up one post over each bale a day. I've got the reel slack, so the reel will move on its own as I'm lifting up over. And during the growing season, so my road, I, I kind of, I really do what Alan Williams talks about, adapted multi-paddock grazing. That's really my grazing style. I mean, you know, I'm fluctuating stock density. I'm fluctuating the amount of moves I make a day, uh, my rotation, what time of year it is. If it's really wet out, I might give them a wider area so they don't pug it up as bad. I'm literally being adaptive. I'm changing every single day. So, like, for example, today, when I go move the cows this evening, they're on some Milo stocks, and I would call it more like a strip grazing. The, the you know, the grazing paddock is small. It's, it's narrow, but it's long because it's in a row crop field, of course. 
and it takes the entire reel actually to make it all the way across. So <laughs> I broke a few. I've had to add some polywire in my, all my reels to get them to reach out that far. But, you know, I mean, it, just, you know, for my system, it works really well for me. Now, I would never tell anybody just to, let's say, if you're getting started, you know, it's so easy with cattle, especially on rented ground. So I kind of did it backwards of how you probably should do it. If I was going to, you know, press the restart button, I would probably go look for rented land. Rent some land because the cost of land is so expensive, it's hard to justify. So, you know, rent some land, buy a couple poly reels. Even if the farm only has one water source, just, you know, backtrack to the water. The, cat, the animals will go back for water when they need it, but just keep them moving. Keep the cattle moving. You know, I'm sure Brian's talked about that. You know, if you leave cattle in one area or you let them, if you do Columbus method grazing, they're going to just tear up your farm. You're going to have these cow paths down your pasture. It's going to cause erosion, especially in our high rainfall environment. I mean, if I did that, it'd be a complete disaster, you know? Right. <clears throat> so before we get a whole lot further, um, tell us about, tell us where you are and what your climate's like and kind of what your forage base, what your, mm -hmm. what your management context is a little bit more. You did, you know, you did touch on it that uh, you've got some, some row crops and, cow calf pairs so tell us about like your environment and an ecosystem rainfall forage base things like that yeah so um so we're in, we're supposed to be about a 44 inch rainfall environment our first freeze in, on, on average is october 22nd so we're mm -hmm. relatively pretty you know most of the year um you know mostly in our pastures i mean in, in my area especially it's mostly just fescue and fescue to me is the absolute easiest grass to manage. I mean, it's, you know, you can look up Jim Garrish or Greg Judy or whoever on managing fescue pasture. And there's so many different methods that work. I think it's so much more easy in my environment than it is in like your environment because of how dry you guys are. Um, you know, with me, I can make mistakes. And in 45 days, if we get a it rain, it's going to recover back and I'm going to be all right. But you know, right. I feel like I make more a mistake, have. Yeah, yeah, if it's going to grow back. The wrong right. time of year, um, it could take two years or, or longer to recover that. Exactly. And with me, like I said, with how much rainfall we get, the heat units we get, stuff just grows. You know, I mean, it's not hard to, it's not hard to. But now that does have some disadvantages too. So like last year, for an example, uh, before June 1st, we had 45 inches of rain. Before June mm -hmm. 1st. So that makes it really difficult with row cropping because, you know, there's kind of timely times you need to get stuff planted. That's why, to me, cattle are a great way to step into farming because you don't have all the equipment costs. You know, you don't have, I mean, people totally get messed up on equipment costs. There is so much money in, I mean, property tax and insurance and fuel and, and just regular upkeep on the equipment maintenance is right. terrible. You know, I mean, and it's just, I think cattle are a great way to get started, especially with rented land, you know. I, I think that's really good advice. So let's talk about your crop operation. You do cover crops too, right? And you graze those cover crops? Uh, all all the fields I own, but one have a fence on and water, yep. Um, so, so let's talk about on that. My farm, oh, What's your strategy yeah, for grazing yeah. cover crops as far as planting and, and things like that? Okay, so when bean price is really crappy, I don't know why guys were planting double crop beans in my environment. I was planting warm season cover crop mixes and grazing them out. 
I mean, I could graze, you know, I mean, for example, a couple of years ago, I was grazing 74 cow-calf pairs and, um, you know, I make a dollar a day. So even though they had like 200 pound cows on them, I was getting a dollar just as I was for their mom. And then there was bulls in there too. So I was getting $2 a day for them. So, you know, when you're getting $76 a day, it's pretty easy work and pretty steady income. And I don't have a whole lot of expense in it. I mean, yeah, I do have the poly wire and I do have the fencing infrastructure and things like that. But for the most part, you know, I'm, I guess of how I'm grazing them, it's kind of the same way. If it's really wet outside, they're going to get a bigger area. If it's dry, like most times it kind of is in summer, you know, they're going to be more, they're going to be tighter. They're going to run like, you know, around 40,000 stock density, somewhere in there probably, you know, just on average. I mean, we're, we, I don't have them super tight. I'm not running like a million pound on my, my cropland just because mm-hmm. my system, my system isn't that far along, you know? And I, I don't want to, I don't really want to cause issues in my ground. If that makes sense. I mean, if, if you jump in this too fast, you're going to pug your ground up and you might cause more damage than you're doing good at, at, the, at first, you know, you're just kind of trying to get it started going, you know? Right. Right. So what kind of, what are some of your cover crop blends that you like? What works well? Well, they vary. Yeah. They vary a lot depending on the resource. So I plant everything from facility to sedan grass to safflower. I mean, I don't know how many different species I've raised, probably just guessing 30 or 40. Not at one time, of course, but, you know, for like a summer mix like that, since most of the time I'll go like wheat and then a cover crop mix to go to corn. So with it, there'll be a few cool season components, like there'll be some radishes in there, uh, maybe some vetch or something like that. But the majority of those mixes will be sedan grass, sun hemp, sunflowers, buckwheat, um, you know, safflower, baldy, especially from green cover seed. I really like that one. There's a plug for them. Because it's mm. a spineless, it's a spineless, uh, it's a spineless safflower. So the cattle, you know, okay. their mouths to eat, and it, it works out pretty good. I mean, you can have a lot of. There's a lot of different species that work, especially down here. I feel like really there's not very many species I can think of that don't work. <laughs> there's quite a bit that do work, you know. <clears throat> right. You obviously ended up where you're at. Um, there in, in Southwest Missouri, because that's where you're from. So. Here's a question. If you could pick up and go anywhere, where would you go and why? Hmm. Okay. Probably, I think, probably Arkansas. You know, they they seem to be, I, especially to get in like the wooded areas, mm-hmm. which would be a great place. For, you know, that land might be cheaper. So, you know, somewhere like that, somewhere where, this is kind of probably a bad example, but, you know, Greg Judy found that niche place where the land was affordable and he could make it work and he could justify that ground. And yeah, he'd do, he had to do a lot of manual labor, which I don't like doing that because I'm lazy, but, you know, he, he had to do a lot of manual labor to make it what it is. But somewhere probably like that, you know, somewhere where land is relatively cheap, you know, and you can grow fescue. <laughs> because if you can grow fescue, Fescue's just so stupid, simple to manage. I mean, I have I actually hate fescue because there's so many negative effects with it, especially with the Kentucky right. 31 like we got. But yeah, you know, I, I want more warm season in my pasture. So that's actually one thing, uh, kind of get off subject a little bit here. But in my pastures, I'm starting to see big blue stem, you know, uh switchgrass, 
uh, little blue Dallas grass. I'm starting to see some of these warm seasons pop up. Actually, this year, I found my first cardinal flower, which is freaking awesome. Because as you guys know, that's a native, that's a native prairie. Uh, I don't know what it is. I, it's not a legume. It's a broadleaf. Native prairie broadleaf. And I've seen the first one this year. There's actually two of them. And they're about 30 feet away from each other in the shade. And it's so awesome. And beautiful, bright red bloom. Just an awesome plant. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, I don't know. That stuff like that gives me the jitter still. It's sweet. It's a huge benchmark, <laughs> right? That you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm just lucky. <laughs> so are those things that you planted or are, are those in the seed bank in the soil? Uh, I did not plant them. So there's two ways they got there. You're staring it up. Yeah. yeah. They either come from the late, late seed bank or they come from hay. One of the two. Yeah. Or the river wash. <laughs> you know, no, I didn't plant those. I don't even know how much those would cost. I know gamma grass is pretty expensive, but no, the Dallas grass and the big blue, all that just kind of showed up. I, I don't, like I said, I don't know where it comes from. It must've been the seed bank. Cause I don't remember feeding hay there. So I had the farm, but it could have been one of the previous owners, you know, you never really know. Interesting. So is that something you're going to try to manage to increase or are you? Yes. What's your plan? 100%. Those areas where the big blue is, I put up a polywire around those areas. The cattle graze yeah, close to those areas, but not near yeah. them. And I'm trying to let all that go to seed. All all of those yeah. those warm seasons go to seed. They are not getting grazed. Um, they'll get dormant grazed, but they are not getting grazed the growing season. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> I found that uh, my big blue stem, I can graze it fairly early in the season. And as long as I still have some moisture reserves remaining in about 45 to 52 days of growing season left, it'll go ahead and finish out and go to seed. So it'll be interesting to see um, see what your observations are in another year or two about how your big blue stem responds to that grazing and that management. Well, there was some, <laughs> there have been some birds. I, I see some birds on there and like I always try because it's some of these, I mean, this farm I'm talking about like my home farm. I mean, literally right, right. next to my house is where I'm talking. So when I see birds out there, the shotgun's going off. <laughs> so, I mean, I just don't want them around the big blue patch because I really want to manage all those things. Now, I know I can't stop that from happening, but hey, it makes me feel better. <laughs> well, maybe the birds are just spreading it around. I I know um, on a, in a similar vein about uh, birds and seed dispersion, um, I've seen some research coming out in Nebraska about eastern red cedar trees in which you know we don't need to get into talking about cedar tree management today we can do that but, uh, that may be a summer series but, uh, the the bird that the birds that eat the cedar berries that berry will pass the digestive tract within seven minutes and no that kidding. means that it's only about a 200 to 250 yard radius um, around that female tree that bears the seeds that it's that is really subject to infestation so oh, okay the, the question would be is you know is there maybe a benefit to letting letting birds eat some of those seeds and and naturally disperse them because when it comes out of the back end of the bird it's perfectly encapsulated in fertilizer Right, right. Well, let me reiterate, you know, I'm not, I'm not advocating to keep birds off your farm. They have, they're a wonderful part of the ecosystem. You know, 
I, I've seen, I love seeing Cardinals, you know, out grazing. My wife's got a bird feeder behind her house. You know, I eat that crap up. But, you know, my, my thing is, you know, is I'm really weird on some things. Some things I'm like, okay, I try to manage this side of things, like with my grazing, my cattle, I try to manage that. But other things, I'm just like, I'll just let it go to hell. I mean, like, you know, like people are like, oh, are you, you going to brush off your pasture? You got trees coming up. I'm like, nah, it'll be all right. Like, you got those blackberries, you going to spray those? Nah, they'll be all right. So, you know, let's talk about blackberries for just a second. So in my environment, we've got quail cubs. We still do. Like, I've, we've tracked quail on my farm. Mm-hmm. And I let blackberries go to seed because that's a winter food source, plus it's predator protection. So they can run up underneath the, the blackberries and be, you know, be safe from hawks or, or foxes or whatever, you know. Um, so there's, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to everything. You know, like Ray Archuleta says, Nature, self-healing, self-organizing, self-regulating. You just got to kind of let stuff be sometimes. Like I said, I don't really get too worked up about, you know, seeing trees or brush in my pasture. Some guys cringe at that, but why do I want to spend money on that? Like, you know, brush hogging or spraying it. I have sprayed my pasture mm-hmm. in some, but I try to keep it minimal, you know, minimize the disturbance. But I mean, just let it just go. I mean, it doesn't really bother me if that stuff comes on. I think that it's trying to put it there for a reason. It Maybe the soil needs a fungal dominant plant there like a tree or a shrub to grow you know for the soil side of things you know you just don't really ever right. know you just go with the flow <laughs> on some stuff well let's uh you touched on something about the, the fungal microbial balance and maybe we'll swing back into that later um and, and, and i agree with you about you know there's a certain level that you just kind of have to look you know just say you know what whatever i'm not going to worry about this um right I, I kind of remember, oh, back in the late '80s, there's my dad had a hired man that he had some pretty good advice, and he said, "Well, if it bothers you that much, just don't go over there anymore." <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, just don't look that way. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think everybody's operation, no matter whose farm or ranch you go to, there's things you aren't proud of. There's there's always things oh. you wish you would change, and yeah, I, I think that's just sure. a natural part of, of the business. Yeah, so 100%. What are I some mean, things yeah. that inspire you to be your best self? Who? Uh, I think for my kids' sake, so I've got a young boy. His name's Jax and JX, and he's six years old. And, dude, he's like my partner in crime. I mean, everywhere I go, he's glued to my side if he's not at school. You know? Mm-hmm. Um he wants to be with me, you know, he'll be out there with cows with me. And he'll, he asks a lot of questions. And sometimes, you know, some of his questions he asks, I'm like, well, I didn't think about it that way, Jack, but this might be the reason why, you know? Um, but I mean, I think that's one of my big drivers and one of my big pushes. I want to leave something for my kids. You know, um, my wife and I, we have uh, some fairly decent sized life insurance policies. If something was to happen to me, uh, that would be covered. Um, you know, I guess, you know, my context of why I do what I do, it, it, I think it comes derived from my children. I mean, I, I just want the very best for them. I think all parents want that from their kids. You know, they want the very best for their kids. And so that's kind of, that's kind of why I push. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pushing all the time, you know, you just got to keep nudging forward. You might feel like you're making slow progress, but then when you look back, you know, I'm 26. So you know, I've got, I've got quite a bit of life ahead of me and I hope I can leave mm-hmm. something great for my kids. Kind of one of my hopes, you know? And I think that's what a lot of us need to keep in mind is not only what are we building for ourselves, but what are we going to, what kind of legacy yeah. 
are we going to leave behind, not only for our children, but for the next couple of generations down the line? So what are some things that inspired you and got you into regenerative agriculture? So my first couple of years farming, I was doing everything by the book. I was doing everything what the college were telling me. I was applying exactly as much fertilizer I needed to do, putting on the line when I needed it. You know, I was using litter instead of synthetic fertilizer. I was using things on my corn that were called like in booth and all these, all this different crap. And I'll give an example. My very first cornfield I ever raised, it was on some rented ground, 16 acres. I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but it was a lot to me at the time. And yeah. I, uh, I put out this corn crop, did everything by the book. Well, we went without rain for 35 days or 40 days, and the, and the corn made 90 bushels. And I had this, like, slap-in-the-face moment there. I'm like, okay, number one, I know I need a no-till because I can't afford the equipment for the other crap or, or you know, or custom labor, you know, to hire out that stuff. Oh, yeah. So I was like, let's let's figure out how to let's figure out how to do this. So I started I started reading reading stuff, and I started watching videos. Uh, I was coming, I come across a video from Gabe Brown and I first heard him. I'm like, God, this guy doesn't know anything about farming. What an idiot. And I went right past him. <laughs> well, <laughs> about a month or two later, I was watching a video from Ray Archuleta and Ray mentioned Gabe Brown. And I've got a fairly decent memory. I'm like, huh, that name sounds familiar. So I punched it back in. I'm like, oh yeah, it's this guy. I clicked that video again. And for some reason, it was like I was running as hard as I could into a brick wall. And I hit this brick wall. And somehow I pushed through the brick wall because the brick wall is just a mind block in my own mind. That I couldn't mm -hmm. get past thinking that stuff could work. I pushed through that brick wall and everything just started lining up. I mean, I was like, okay, my farm is focusing on soil health and soil health only because, I mean, that's literally, my, that's my farm. My farm focuses on soil health. I focus on soil health. That's what I'm always telling myself. Don't get caught up in products or practices. I don't believe right. in these microbes and micronutrients. Don't buy that crap. Uh, well, <laughs> let me reiterate. You know, if it fits your operation, try it. Do do control do control uh, areas to see if it actually pays. But I don't think that stuff pays. And and then you know, just key to the principles. Don't focus on products and practices. You know, I don't I don't get all hyped up about sixteen inch row corn. It doesn't make a lot of sense down here in my environment because I can plant a cover crop any time of the year, month of the year, and it's going to grow. It'll eventually start right. growing. So I don't need 16 inch corn to intercede into, you know, um, mm -hmm. kind of going down a wormhole here. So I'll keep going, <laughs> um, you know, on, on the micronutrient side. So I took a lot of tissue samples of what most people would call weeds. You know, I just call them, you know, Forbes or something my cows like to eat. But let's think about like, uh, food. <laughs> exactly, right. exactly. So, you know, we, we got like pigweeds, for example. Okay. Pigweeds are really high in boron. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. For example, they're 35.8 parts per million boron on average. So this is a three-year study I've done on my own farm. I just pull tissue samples on the same day every year of weeds that are out in my row crop fields that I don't spray for just to see what they're bringing to my system because they're, re they're there for a reason. You know, yeah. Those weeds are showing, right. they're showing us what we're doing wrong. <laughs> you know, like if I've got hairy vetch in some of my pastures, that's a cobalt deficiency. My soil needs cobalt, and that's why the hairy vetch is there. Maybe it's the nitrogen, too. Um, like Johnson grass. Okay. Johnson grass has 101 parts per million zinc. Zinc is the nutrient that plants use to ward off disease. So mm -hmm. it's bringing that to my system. And all those plants I just named, pigweed, you know, uh, Johnson grass, lamb's quarter, you know, whatever it might be, 
cows will eat them. Even thistles. Mm-hmm. I mean, have you looked at iodine and thistles? The iodine level in thistles is insane. Uh, so, you know, my cows, uh, last year, I kind of, some guys might kind of cringe at this, but I didn't feed mineral for most of last year to my cattle. But when I did that and I kept them in tighter stock densities, they were right. eating those forbs. I've got pictures of my cows eating thistles and I can send them to my buddies. And it's like, my God, you must be starving your cows to death. They're eating thistles. But they were needing those and they'll eat all those plants at different times. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing what cattle can do and it's amazing what they will do. I don't have a thistle problem on my farm. I've never prayed for thistles. Now saying that this year, I might have to, cause it might just overrun my farm, but, but I haven't had to, I, I've seen honeybees on thistles. I mean, I think, I think they're a very attractive, uh, blooming plant, but I think pollinators yeah. are, are attracted to those. So, you know, if we just don't go out there and just make a stupid human mistake, I mean, Everywhere in nature, nature balances itself, and we as humans make the imbalances. When we go and spray for something, it causes another problem. Everything has cascading compounding effects, like Dr. Alan Williams always talks about. That's so true, because I see that. Like, when I make a mess up on my farm, (laughs) my farm shows me exactly where I messed up. Like, okay, it was too wet this time when I grazed this. Look at my plant growth. Look at my plant spacing. My plant spacing is far apart. You know, I don't have a very dense stand. It, it, it's all about, you know, seeing and observing and then changing. That's all, that's all, that's all my grazing program really is. Just seeing what I did wrong and just kind of changing and keep going. <laughs> right. And I think that's something that's pretty important. And, you know, I've had some similar experiences uh, with my cattle and custom cattle at high stock densities. They get a lot more selective and they try a lot more, um, different forbs and different grasses, and they eat significantly different when when you bunch them up and start running. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, here I, I think the magic number here is probably going to be somewhere around twenty five to thirty thousand pounds an acre is when you really start putting the gas pedal on the system. And I understand it's going to be different for everybody. And yeah, here's exactly. a term that here's a term that I want to throw out there is contextually appropriate management and it's as long as you are are managing appropriately for your context you know you don't need to defend your principles you don't need to defend your practices right yeah i'm only a couple hundred miles west of you but i'm in a vastly different environment oh yeah (laughs) you're in the desert i don't know why you want to farm there man <laughs> I don't farm. I don't know why anybody would either, but Are, do you guys try to raise corn in your environment? Oh yeah, there's guys that raise corn straight north of me fifteen miles. Mm-hmm. And, and they pump ground I don't know if I'm uh, ready to lose all my grain farmer friends quite yet. So I was going to say, cruise <laughs> on. <laughs> We're moving on. Uh, one thing I do want to say though is is this: I don't believe God gave cows four legs to stay to hay bunk. Keep them moving. These animals have four legs for a reason. They're not right. supposed to stand there eating crap on themselves. They're supposed to be out on the land. I get so sick when I see these guys that have hundreds of or thousands of acres and they feed hay in one area 
it's disgusting. I mean, you look at that area. It's so I, I don't even get into it. I mean, crap where you eat and see how healthy you are. <laughs> you know, I mean, that just seems like a no brainer to me. I mean, that just seems like common sense. Like, okay, we get sick calves with pneumonia every year. We have doctor calves for pneumonia. Why? Maybe, yeah, it might be part of when you're calving. You know, I pushed my calving way back from where it used to be, but, you know, just, <laughs> just observe. I mean, something so simple sometimes becomes so stupid. <laughs> so you talked about, you, you just mentioned you pushed your calving date. So let's talk mm-hmm. about that. Why did you push your calving date and, um, and what was the thinking behind that? To avoid the rain. I mean, yeah. I was, I was getting, I would have a cow every year have mastitis, at least one. And, you know, a lot of that's from bacteria getting the udder. And I think mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're in so much mud, it just makes a lot of sense to me to not calve when it's so freaking wet. It's not necessarily that it's really cold. Now, it does get cold here occasionally. I mean, we can get down to teens or it's been negative like once in my life that I can remember. But, um, you know, just I, I pushed that calving date back. And that's still, this might sound kind of weird, but my calving date fluctuates as my system fluctuates. So like last year, for an example, uh, I, I put the bulls in on uh, April 20th. Well, this past year, they went in on June 29th. So that's kind of moving too. I, I haven't found the sweet spot there yet. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to find that sweet spot. And I really want to find that. And, and, you know, guys are like, well, hey, if you take away all these amendments to your cattle, you know, you just won't have calves or they'll die from black or whatever. I've not personally seen that on my farm and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not advocating to cut stuff like that off, but I have just not seen that. I mean, I'm calving out over 90% and that's too good. I want to calve right. out less because if I get better epigenetics on my farm, I want to have some, some calving issues because I'm trying to wean out to the bottom, well, then, you know, five percent. Yeah. yeah pull the bottom five or 10% off every year, you know, keep back the best peppers off the oldest cows that do their job on my farm and just keep that, keep that rolling. You know, keep the system rolling. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when are you calving? And uh, well, you said you put your bulls out at the what end of June. So that's going to put you calving kind of in the beginning of summer. Um, yep. Uh, yeah. There, kind of, yeah. Do you have any other summer, reasons yep. for for beginning of summer, or are you just simply yes. trying to avoid the wet season and health problems? Okay, so there's a few there's a few reasons why I aimed at this at that this year. So I had a I had kind of a pink eye issue this past year. I didn't doctor for anything. I didn't doctor for any of them, but I had about I would say close to twenty percent infected with pink eye. Mm-hmm. And I truly truly believe pink eye is not a fly issue. It's a protein and energy imbalance issue. So when we're coming in that spring flush and that green fescue is growing, my cows are squirting out five feet behind them. And so I'm trying to minimize that. I'm trying to, you know, if I have to this year, one of my plans is, since I didn't, I'm not going to feed much hay this winter. One of my plans is if in the spring, if the cows are, you know, ejecting out like that, I'm going to put them tight and make them eat a bale of hay to balance the energy and protein in their gut. And, you know, once again, you know, this system has to be fluent. You know, I mean, it's so important. I mean, if, if someone wants to start out and let's say they just have four or five cows, 
I understand you can't do what I'm doing, like with the calving. Like I know you probably need to calve out 90% to make the farm payment or whatever, but I'm at a I'm at a comfortable place in my life where I can push that a little harder. And uh, I, I I would never advocate for not calving out. I'd love I'd love to calve out 100% if all my animals were perfect, but I've got five on my my coal list that's gonna go, you know. And and, and then the cows that don't have calves they go. This is very important. If you run a cow calf operation. Tag your calves, okay? keep your cows tagged, and cull off the ones that don't have calves. In a cow-calf operation, that cow's job is to have a calf. If she doesn't have a calf, don't give her a second chance. I don't care if she's the best cow you ever had and she's 15 years old. Get rid of her. I don't care if prices are low. I don't care if prices are high. Cull her off because she did not do her job. She did not make you money. You fed her all year long. Even if you weren't feeding hay, to feed her out in pasture cost something. Get rid of her. Right. That, that's so important. Keep calling. Keep moving. Keep pushing your genetic pool and just, you know, just hammer down. You know. Absolutely. And you know, I, we've had several conversations over the last year about about breeding and cattle, and you know, we definitely share a philosophy. So, what are some of your what are some of your cheat codes and hacks that you use? What are some of your okay. Uh, for, for the for the cattle side. Cattle side or crop side? Okay, so I guess I'll kind of put them together because in my operation, they're not separated. My row crop is with my cattle side because it all goes into one pocketbook, and most guys mm-hmm. tend to separate their enterprises. My enterprises are together. I don't separate. So, um, so one of my some of my cheat comes to be like with cattle. Identify the cow or cows on your farm that meet what you're trying to accomplish out of your herd. Like I'm just going to use mine for example. I like a short fat cow that's around a thousand pounds or less. I don't want over a thousand and I'm in a really wet environment. I don't want to pug. I don't want to pug the ground up too bad. I want red or white cattle. I'm, I'm in Southwest Missouri. I have a lot of heat. You don't get up over hundred in the summer. I don't want to have a black cow out there standing underneath a tree because in the summertime, sometimes my cows don't have access to shade. They got to be out there grazing. So really identify what you're looking for in your herd. That is very important. That'd be one of my cheat codes for that. And on the row crop side, if you've got cattle and row crop, every time you're not growing a cash crop, plant a cover crop. Our entire job as farmers and ranchers is to collect sunlight through photosynthesis. Constantly Mm -hmm. be thinking about how Add that to your system because carbon is the main driving factor of everything. Like work carbon life forms. Let me give an example. If I gave if I gave someone a vitamin pill and it had every single vitamin you needed to live, could you live off that one pill? Well, obviously not. Well, why is that? It has every vitamin you need. Whenever we put out when we put out fertilizer for our crops, we put out everything all the fertilizer we a crop needs. What's it missing? It's missing carbon. You need that mass. That's why that one little pill you can't survive off of. Yeah, it has every nutrient you need, but it's missing the main thing you need, which is carbon. So, you know, just if you're not growing a rope, if you're not growing a cash crop, grow a cover crop. And if you've got access to cattle, graze that or custom graze it because custom grazing is such good money and there's such little expense. I mean, it's, it's okay. that's really, I mean, yeah. I've made a lot of money off that. Yeah. I like to refer to custom grazing as a good second base hit every year. 
it's just a yeah. good steady money. It's good steady work. You're never going to hit a home run, but that's okay because you're going to be on second base every time. Yeah. <laughs> I I agree, man. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a great way to turn over cash and on a farm, you know, there's certain times when things look pretty crappy in your bank account, but then there's other times you're like, Hey, I'm rolling good, but you got to learn how to balance that too. I would say to a young farmer getting started, really, really understand economics. And every time you make a decision to buy something, think about your mm -hmm. bottom line. Will this bring money to my operation? <clears throat> so let's talk about that. Let's talk about fertility. How do you add fertility back to your fields? <laughs> Fertilizer's a misconception. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let me let me reinstate that. Uh, fertilizer is very subjective. So on all my pasture ground, I've never applied any pounds of synthetic fertilizer, any litter. The only thing I've ever applied is what comes out the back end of my cow or my chicken. So <laughs> you know that's just that's just how it is. Uh, plants make nutrients available through carbonic acid being released, you know, from the plants or, or mycorrhizae fungi, an exchange of nutrients. There's so many different ways plants make these nutrients available. And, you know, UA, Understanding Ag, did a great study on the amount of nutrients. I think it was 50 different locations. And they took a, I believe it was a 12-inch soil sample. And there was like 18,000 pounds of potash in the organic form. 18,000 pounds. So why are we wanting to buy all these inputs? I've got one farm of mine, one row crop farm, which understand it is a row crop farm. I am pulling nutrients and carbon off every time I harvest a crop, but I always have a cover crop growing on there and I always have cattle grazing on those covers. And I have never applied to this day any NP or K or any micros or any of that crap. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not crap. It all, has a, it all has a purpose, but I've not applied any of that. And my my yields aren't the highest by any means on that farm, but they are not my lowest either. And, you know, just for some more context, my soil is less than six inches deep. I have a hard time pulling soil samples because all, we don't have much soil. We go soil rock layers, <laughs> rock. Right. I mean, we have a lot of rocks in my area, um, especially on my ground, because I bought ground that I could afford, <laughs> not the best ground in the world, but ground I can afford. So I've got a lot of hills and stuff like that and, and river bottom ground. So it's definitely not like, you know, what I would call prime farmland by any means. <clears throat> that answer your question? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was perfect. You know, uh, one of our previous guests, uh, to quote him, he said, we're farming subsoil because all of our topsoils are already gone. And right. I think, you know, I, I can agree with that to some extent. I think that's true um, to a broad degree in a lot of contexts. So. If I offered you fifty thousand dollars today to invest in your business, what would you do with it, and why? Casino. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, if 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 you gave me fifty thousand today, is, is this? Uh, are you doing this for me? Okay, so um, what I would do is, hypothetically, I would, like I, I oh, hypothetically, okay. Well, darn. Do you mean if? or from where I'm at now yeah from where I'm at now I would now pay yeah. Off my, yeah if if you gave me fifty thousand dollars it's going right to my nutmeg farm payment I mean 
I'm not going to act like I ever had just going right over there. Pay down debt, improve <laughs> cash flow. <laughs> exactly. Knock the debt down. Why do you want to have debt over your head? I don't want to have debt when I'm older. I, I think I think in 10 years, if I if I quit buying ground, that's one issue my wife says. If I quit buying ground, we wouldn't be in debt because, like I said, I mean some of our some of our cash flow is it's it's really good. I mean, I'm just going to give an example here. Uh, so this is from a this is from one of my cornfields. I'm not going to give you I'm not going to give you all the breakdown, but I will explain that everything is in here. Everything from land payment to property tax to fitting a $15 miscellaneous fee in their crop insurance. You know, I put a $20 an acre drilling cost in there, which might be high. I put a $35 combining cost in there, but the net income on that farm was $416 an acre. And this was last year before these corn prices got good. So if I can net that, that's pretty dang good in my opinion. You know, I mean, yeah. And that's not my most profitable farm either. You know, if you get into like, if you're row cropping on the row crop side and you get into like seed production, some of that stuff, that's really good money. Um, you know, marketing is the hardest thing in my opinion, mm-hmm. but it is one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's Jim Harris that says you need to spend, what is it, 30, 33, per, no, half your time. You need to spend 50% of your time thinking about ways to market your product or produce or whatever you're growing because that's, you have all the risk out there. Why would you not try to take advantage of all the money that's out there, you know? Right. That's, you know, that's really solid advice. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I, like I said, I think marketing is probably still the hardest side. I mean, I, I raise a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm raising a lot more seed than I am commodities because, you know, everybody can raise commodities, but when you start raising seed, that's a little bit better money. So reach out to seed companies, be, you know, I mean, if you're farming or starting to farm, Reach out to, you know, there's a lot of different seed companies. I'm sure you can find them. Um, you know, reach out to them and see if you can grow a product for them, whether it's wheat or soybeans or something easy like that. Just dip your toe in the water. You know, uh, I'm growing a lot of, I'm growing a lot of species that, uh, I guess I shouldn't say a lot. I'm growing some species that aren't available yet on a massive scale, but I'm starting to get them there. You know, this is like a three or four year process, but I'm going to get them on a massive scale where these certain cover crop species will be available to farmers to fit their resource concerns, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, developing new cover crops and new varieties is, you know, something that definitely needs to be done, you know, especially as we try (laughs) to think about transitioning, you know, a lot of these cropping systems to maybe, you know, interspersed row cropping with perennial pasture strips. Right, right. I mean, it that's a hell. It's a hell of a lot of work. You know, I mean, it's not easy when you're trying to start something from nothing to make it something. There's a lot to it. I mean, I can't really go into a lot of details on it because, yeah, in case it fails, you know. But it is very tough to find something that meets that criteria and work for it It takes a lot of thought and i feel like my biggest asset on my farm is not my my equipment or or how much i labor i feel like it's my mind you have to put the thought process in it to make it work everything i do i think it out i mean i'll be laying in bed at night it'll be two o'clock in the morning and i'll get up and jog down a note on my phone or you know i'll be reading a book 
and it, something will click. I'm like, oh, I got to write that down, or I got to, or I got to remember that. Um, it's just, it's just constant, constant education. That is so important, and we we really don't talk about that enough. Yeah, soil health is important, but just keep on that constant education. Keep educating yourself. Keep pushing your mind as far as you can go, and you'll be amazed what you can accomplish if you just work out your brain instead of working out your muscles. Mm-hmm. So what have you done lately to sharpen your management acts and what are you learning about right now that you're most excited about? Uh, well, let's see. There's a certain breed of cattle that has really been putting a lot of effort into recently, you know, and studying about it and, and how different breeds work together and, and how different genetics impact over another genetic like. A solid, I'm just giving an example. A solid colored animal is dominant in the gene pool over a spotted animal. Uh, you know, uh, when you when you look at a bull, if the bull's front or if the bull's back let back feet step in front of his front feet, that means he's probably going to typically have a smaller birth weight. You know, so just different different things like that. Um, yeah, that, that's <laughs> to, to make a long story short. That's kind of that's kind of what I've been into recently. <laughs> Oh, we can have long stories. That's okay. We we still have plenty of time. <laughs> Every podcast I get so, on, they go over like an hour. And like Matt, you just need to shut up sometimes. <laughs> oh no, I mean we're we have we can go at least another hour and a half before I have anything else I need to do. <laughs> Sounds longer, good. Take me in. Going, we're having a good time. So yeah, you said you had some fails, and I like to define fail as the first attempt in learning. So what were mm-hmm. some of your fails and what did you learn from them? Don't get caught up in yield. Yield's really ignorant. Get caught up in profit, number one. Number two, don't get caught up in a certain person. Don't try to make your farm like one of the people you admire. Um, your farm okay. is not their farm because your climate's completely different. Don't get caught up in whoever you enjoy listening to. Don't try to make your farm exactly like them. I mean, I'm not going to take your cattle, cattle over there in Kansas and bring them 200 miles this way. It just doesn't work. Um, keep your genetics close. I've had some failures with that. I mean, I've got cattle I bought 50 miles away, and they come to my farm, and they just crash. They just mm-hmm. go to crap. You know? um, it, I mean, there's just a lot of different – there's just a lot of different – I've had a lot of failures. Um, I guess I shouldn't say a lot. I just keep my failures small. You know, if I'm trying out a new cover crop or a new cash crop, I'm not going to do it on 50 or 60 acres. I'm going to do it on like eight acres or 28 acres. I'm not going to do it on a large scale. If I change something about my herd, you know, that's another thing I didn't talk about. My herd stocking rate changes too throughout the year. You know, I'm pulling cow here. And if I find a cow over here, I like, I might bring her on my farm. Or if I've got another rented farm, I'm like, hey, this cow, I think would be better suited on this farm. I'll bring her over and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess my biggest failure I probably ever had was that original, my very first year trying to farm. Uh, I just tried to do everything that the college has told me to do and the universities, and it was a complete disaster. You know, um, this is one thing I want to say about colleges. They, they bring a lot to the table for data, but all data is anecdotal. It can all be skewed one way or another. And also college studies it involves reductionist science we need to think holistically this we're dealing with an ecosystem we're not dealing with this single species crop that we're trying to you know grow this one way we're dealing with an ecosystem we have to think 
as a whole. You know, I even consider, you know, when worms are most active, which in mm-hmm. me is really early, still, still cold, I might not run, run as high as stock density during that time. And the reason for that is, is because I ran it higher in the winter normally to slow down my rotation. So I stomped in more litter or that residue on the soil surface. So like worms, you know, in a worm casting, I don't know if you guys have ever taken analysis on a worm casting or not, but this is on average. They're about 26% carbon, 1.9% nitrogen, 1.4% potassium, 1.6% phosphorus, and around 3.7% calcium. So, you know, I'm trying to leave them as kind of a, I guess you could say a fertilizer. You know, that worm casting off the soil is kind of like a fertilizer. It acts as a fertilizer. It's going to decompose and be returned back to plants. So it's just, you know, it's, it's always, <laughs> my system is always changing and we're always, I'm always trying to just push the, push the envelope, you know? Right. And I think that's important. You know, we have to press the envelope and not be afraid to fail small. Um, you know, you said, you mentioned that you, know, you tried things on small acreage here and there. Uh, the first strip grazing experiment I did on the native pasture, um, yeah, it was it was kind of an impressive scale. It's 250 acres, and we jammed up 120 cows in there for 120 days, and <laughs> that was three and a half percent of the ranch. So if right. I would have ruined it, if I would have set it back, you know, it's three and a half percent of the ranch. Not a big deal. Right. So don't be afraid to try something and fail small. Exactly, and, and you know, use other people's mistakes as a learning tool on your own. I mean listen to why their mistake happened. Like, you know, for me, example, you heard how I failed with corn. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're in a row crop, don't put all those expenses out there. Um, you know, and really understand, you know, like let's say you're starting out farming with, or you're starting out ranching with cattle or chickens or sheep. Maybe, like I was getting ready to say, look into maybe a different form of livestock. Maybe look into sheep over cattle. They're less to get into. You know, I think a lot of like uh, ewes in my area, like for lambs, are, like over three dollars a pound, I believe. So I mean, that's better mm-hmm. than cattle on the side. Um, you know, just think about different ways to do things. It, it, <laughs> it, there's not one shoe size fits all. That's just not a thing. You know, just don't make your operation like someone else's that you admire. That's that's really important. And and think out everything you're gonna do. I mean, I think my biggest failures was probably because I listened to the wrong people. I was admiring the wrong people. I was admiring these yield champions and, and all these people, you know. Well, they never talked about profit. They just talked about yield. And I had my head so shoved up there, you know what, and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't think clearly. You know, I, my ears were plugged, you know. So what are some of the resources or, or some of the people that have really changed your mind or opened your mind? Um... What are some of those resources and maybe some of those learning experiences? Well, I've been, I've been pretty blessed, I guess. I, I've been able to meet a lot of great people. Um, my very first, I guess, official conference I went to, I guess you could say, like I'd been studying this for a couple of years before and, and implementing these practices, but my very first conference I ever went to, I was wanting to integrate animals on my cropland, and I was nervous about it. Well, I happened to run into Michael Thompson. And Michael was, was so open to me about stuff and he's been a great friend to me. Uh, and then less than a month later, I mean, back then 
when I say money was tight, it was freaking tight. I mean, I, I didn't want to spend anything extra that I, cause I didn't have it. And uh, I, my wife and I grabbed up a bunch of money. We went to the Soul Health Academy, and or I did, and she was supportive of me going to that. And that's where I met Ray and Gabe and David Klunchman and Russell Hedrick. And, you know, I'll give you a story, a short story. We were sitting in class. And Gabe was doing this presentation. Gabe would always, you know, Gabe will always give a slide and he'll ask the class a question. Well, every time the question come up, boom, here comes my hand, you know, right up. And I answered like questions like two or three times in a row. And Gabe said, come up here and get a book. And he gave me a book. And he's like, here's dirt. So I'm like, Gabe, I already have this book. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, he gave me, uh, you know, the Soul Health Owner's Manual. And uh, he, I answered another question. He said, kids. You watch way too much YouTube. <laughs> and so, you know, YouTube is a great resource. You know, I mean, there's a lot of great information on YouTube and a lot of great people to follow on YouTube. And so, mm -hmm. like I said, I was blessed with the fact that, you know, those guys, I mean, me and Ray are, and David Kleinschmidt, and we're, we're all really tight. I mean, I talk to those guys on a weekly basis and uh, they're just so encouraging and um, and if I have a, if I have a problem or if they have a problem, you know, we can run that by each other. Now, I think most of the time it's me having a problem and running it by them. I don't think it's the other way around, <laughs> but you know, it's just, uh, it's just it, make, find a good mentor. That's important too. You know, we don't talk about that enough. Find someone in the area that you're trying to succeed in, find a person that's done it and, and try to make them your mentor. And they'll teach you so much, even if they're from different climates. They can teach you so many great things, um, especially with soil, because we all have soil. Like, even though I don't have very much of it on my land per acre, I do have soil. And soil works the same way. Just follow the principles. These principles don't change. I don't care if you're from the desert or if you're from, you know, my monsoon weather. They don't change. Just follow the principles. Don't get caught up in practices and products. <clears throat> So the principles, are you alluding to the six principles of soil health? Some people say there's only five, but I, I think there's. Yeah, yes. Is, the is six principles, context. Yes, yes. That's when we say six, that is the most important context is so important. Um, you know, understanding your why, why are you doing this is that's got to be the baseline. You know, uh, I, I'll name the principles off for you. If people haven't heard of them. Minimize disturbance. That might mean physical. Don't do tillage. Or that might mean chemical. Don't spray too much. All of those cause disturbance in the soil. Keep a living root as long as possible. You need to have that living root there, you know, breaking down these, you know, feeding the biology, excreting carbon in the soil. You know, organic matter is 50 to 58% carbon per 1% of organic matter. So 50 to 58% carbon, and it's free. Just put a freaking plant there to pump carbon in the soil. Or if you're grazing, just give that plant don't take as much off that plant so it has more tissue to capture more sunlight. I mean, that's, that's all plants are. They're just essentially solar panels. Keep the soil covered, you know, keep that residue, keep that litter, that thatch, whatever you want to call it, on the soil surface. If you see soil on your farm, you're not doing something right. You need to change something because if you see bare dirt, whether it's, you know, and I have bare dirt on my farm. I'm not saying I don't, but most of the time it's from like, uh, you know, gateways, you know, where cows might, traffic through most of the time or it's from where I made a mistake like let's say I accidentally spilled you know whatever I was going across my field and I actually spilled oats I don't feed any grain to my, my cattle I'm just giving an example 
but um you know then diversity of plants nowhere that's the, that's the next principle diversity of plants nowhere in nature do you see a monoculture you know the native prairies the forest there's multiple species of, of plants growing together and, and you know I, i've seen guys who are like well how come this cover crop in this multi-species does better than monoculture people ask me that and i'll tell them plants stretch for sunlight so if you've got a broadleaf mm-hmm. plant you got a grass plant they're both trying to stretch for that sunlight and what are they doing as they're stretching they're also getting deeper roots as well they're trying to stretch down because they're trying to c- capture as many nutrients or moisture or whatever they might need to try to get some to try to push up to try to grow and capture sunlight and then i would call the final principle you know it, this has kind of been taken out of context a little bit you know some guys say animal integration but let's think animal and insect integration insects play such a huge role there's more insects on this planet than there is herbivores so they play a very important role in this too so just don't use dewormers don't use these neonics on your corn you know i don't all my corn and beans none of them are treated with neonics i don't use any insecticides on my farm no, actually let me take that back I have in the past used insecticide, but that was because it was so economically devastating. Even after I sprayed, it still sucked. So, you know, um, you're going to have issues like that, but never in my past have I sprayed for insects or used dewormer. So, you know, that insect integration too is important. Think about, think about, you know, the dung beetles and what they can do for your soil. I mean, I think me and Brian share pictures of dung beetles back and forth. And I've got like one or two on my farm that I found. I do have a roller. Oh my gosh. Did I tell you that story, Brian? I haven't heard it yet, but aren't they cool? Oh my gosh. Dude, they're the best, man. I don't care what it is. If I find a dung beetle, I'm going to watch him. If I'm busy, I'm stopping to watch him because they're freaking awesome, man. Uh, the very first time I ever seen a roller, my friend David Kleinschmidt was by. He works for Understanding Ag. He's a consultant. Super smart guy. Awesome dude. And we were uh, we were sitting there. Uh, you know, having a drink and, and barbecuing one night, he'd come down from, I think he was over in Kansas on a consulting trip and come over and stay with me and my wife for a night. And uh, all of a sudden, something was rolling, hitting the light. And I'm like, David, what is that? He goes, Matt, I think it's a dung beetle. And so we went, you know, we went into like ninja mode or whatever, caught that little turd, put him in a jar. And then, of course, you know, what's the thing you do with a dung beetle? You take him out to a cow path. So I took them out. We took them out right. of the cow pass probably like one o'clock at night. We got my phone light out. You know, we got the phone light right there on him. And we're watching him dig around the cow pass. Coolest thing ever. I mean, freaking awesome, you know? I mean, so there's, they're just, and he was big too. I mean, he was like silver dollar size. It was freaking awesome. Oh, good. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a I'm great a high story. Energy <laughs> oh, we love it. We love it. Love the energy. I mean, Brian and I did the same thing in his at his ranch when we found some dung beetles we were like oh this is cool this is great <laughs> now you have a lot more so absolutely well I, I i don't know if i do or not like i said i've maybe seen two or three but by god if i see one i'm going to stop and look at them work because they're they're just a fascinating insect but yeah to answer your question from earlier brian that's the principle of soul health i mean follow those principles and it's hard for your farm to fail if you follow those principles good deal so you mentioned about keeping cattle close, and I know you and I have had a couple discussions about that. So let's talk about that before we continue on down this down another rabbit trail. Um, I like to get cattle as close as I can because their epigenetics are more uh, adapted to your environment. 
um, you know, like I said, I took cattle from 50 miles away or less and brought them on my farm and they just go to crap. And I, maybe it's my management. Maybe I'm a little, maybe I'm harder than that guy was on, on the cattle or maybe he supplemented them grain or whatever it might be. You know, when I, my farm is, when I say grass, grass fed, I mean, it's literally, they don't get grain. The only grain they might get out of the seed head occasionally, you know, I mean, literally they, uh, they just, they stick to grass. And so they have to be adapted to grass on my farm or they're not going to make it. So, uh, or even stocks, you know, I grade stocks too in the winter. So they, uh, they got to be able to survive on that too. And, and, and whole body condition, you know, when I say survive, I don't mean literally die, <laughs> you know, just to clarify, I mean, their body condition drops, you know, I don't want my animals below like a, like a six, you know, in the winter, I really don't want them below that. Now I know the Corianthids are a little different story, but, uh, it, it, you give up, you know, you're giving up something there. So, you know, keep, if you're going to go and let's say buy like a breeding bull, don't go three or four states over because that seems like a disaster to me. And that's just what I've experienced. Have you experienced the same thing? Oh, not necessarily on the breeding bulls. I, I sourced my yeah. bulls from a guy that's only about 30 or so miles away. Um, but there is something to be said about, you know, if you are going to import a bull from a long distance away, you should either have him in in a similar pasture to where he's going with the cows for about 60 days in order for his digestive mm-hmm. tract you know to, to adapt to the forage change and his mm-hmm. semen quality to you know to go ahead and cycle and get back to optimum or you should bring that bull that's traveled a long distance and put him directly with the cows before his semen quality starts to suffer because he's on a different forage than he's used to Right. And one thing, you know, I'm sure you know this too, but I mean, a little bit older bull can produce a lot more semen than a younger bull. So, you know, I don't mind having a, you know, I mean, a lot of guys in my area after a bull five years old, he's going off their farm. I mean, he's gone. And to me, that seems like a failure of a bull. Um, And this is my opinion, you know, this, I'm not really basing this off of facts or anything, but uh, I like an older bull. I mean, to me, that would almost, it kind of sounds weird but would maybe bring some more maternal traits or some more lasting traits into a herd. You know, I don't want to buy this young 18 month bull every year. And my, and that's just, and that's just on my farm. You know I mean? That doesn't work for everybody, but that's just what I do. Right. Do you put a lot of, uh, how do you feel about all the epigenetic testing going on now? Or do you put more faith in your cattleman's eye and looking at phenotype? Yeah. So I don't pay any attention to real EPDs. Uh, I, uh, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, really most of my, when I pick an animal out, it's a visual thing and it's kind of, when I go to buy an animal, you're going to probably get interrogated by me because if I'm going to buy an animal, I want to, I want that animal to meet these certain traits. And I'm going to ask you a lot of questions like, how do you feed them in the winter? How is he fed here? Do you move your cattle? Are they adapted to a poly wire? Um, you know, do do they, do they know how to forage through snow and and things like that? I'm going to ask you tough questions like that. And a lot of producers, they don't even know how to answer those questions. Like I'll ask guys, like if I'm going to buy some cattle, I'm like, ah, I don't really know. I don't really pay attention. And, uh, that's just, I mean, that's just me. I mean, I really try to observe the animal before I buy one and try to make a, try to make a good decision. And not all my animals are, I mean, even like I said earlier, you know, they're not, where I want to be yet. My herd is not where it wants to be yet. 
I, you know, I'm working on a few projects and, and they're, uh, it's changing and it's changing fast. <laughs> right. I get that. And I, you know, I'm not where I want to be either. And, you know, I think we both have a very similar goal in mind and, you know, our previous two guests, um, you know, we all, we all feel very, very similarly about our philosophies in breeding and management. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on. So <laughs> what's the best advice that you wish you'd gotten on the day you started? Best advice. Um, uh, yeah, back to what I said earlier, you know, really focus on principles, you know, don't get caught up in equipment. I mean, a lot of guys, they want to go into farming because they like tractors. They like, you know, machinery, you know, steel does not pay the bill. So the more steel you got on your farm, the more your farm's going to cost you. So, uh, you know, my equipment is literally like bare minimum. I don't have big equipment by any means, but I raise so many crops. I'm not raising, you know, when I, when I say I have 650 acres of grow crop, it's not all corn and soybeans. Every one of my farms this past year had a different crop growing on it. So it was, it's really, you know, uh, just to get back to your question, um, you know, just focus on, Focus on the soil. Don't focus on equipment. Don't focus on these amendments that you think you have to apply to your row crop land or your or your cattle even, you know, I mean, uh, or your livestock, you know, just I seen a guy the other day post on a, I think, I, I, I guess, I don't know what he posted on, but he's like, hey, what kind of dewormers do you guys use on your chickens? I don't use any dewormers on my chickens. I didn't know that was a thing. So I guess I'm really uneducated. <laughs> so we, man. You've mentioned your chickens twice, and we haven't even got a chance to talk about it. Do you want to talk about your chickens and uh, and why <laughs> chickens? So my okay, so my chickens is a nonprofit organization. Uh, <laughs> they don't make any money. <laughs> they 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 do cost money. Uh, they're mostly just a hobby of mine. I, I do sell eggs. Um, we've got around uh, fifty something chickens right now because predation's high. I lose a lot okay. of coyotes. I mean, literally on my farm, you know, it's survival of the fittest with chickens. Um, and I've got a, I've got a eggmobile that I kind of copied the design off of uh, Gabe Brown from, and it's got like laying nests in the back opening door. It's got a solar panel door on. It's got two 25 pound feeders so that I can put a sack of feed in there. And, you know, my chickens don't really cost me a whole lot because I see leftover screenings from mm. some of my cash pop upgrades. So like uh, Lespedeza, I raised Korean Lespedeza, not Teresa Lespedeza, not to be confused with Teresa, but I raised <laughs> Korean Lespedeza. <laughs> and uh, the screenings and the cracks off that, you know, there's a lot of daughter and smart weeds, um, small Lespedeza, unholed Lespedeza and things like that that go into that, in, in those screenings. And my chickens eat a lot of that. Um, and, you know, my kids, I mean, my kids love the chickens. I mean, they're, they're my my daughter earlier today, I, we, I made uh, some fresh orange juice yesterday. I mean, my son did. So we peeled two big bags of orange juice and we uh, made our own orange juice. And uh, we took out all the, the peels and all the crap that's not juice. You know, I don't know what that stuff's called, but whatever it is. And we took that out there to them earlier this morning. We called them, you know, and here they all come and run and flying and food, feed them. Honestly. It's, yeah, it, it, it's just fun. You know, it's just, that's something that I enjoy. And I think in farming or ranching, we need to find things that we enjoy. And I enjoy, mm -hmm. I enjoy, I don't enjoy death. I don't like to use herbicides. I don't like using insecticides. I don't like use, I don't use any fungicides, but 
I don't like to use that stuff because it's not enjoyable to me. I don't, I don't want to kill anything really. I, I just want to grow something. And I think that's an important distinction. And, you know, a lot of people that get into the regenerative sphere, they, they just wake up in the morning and get excited about what new life they're going to go look for, or what new life they're, they're going to find that day out in their field. Yep. It makes you feel good, so, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You know, dung beetles, dung beetles are some of my favorite employees. They're, they're awful hardworking <laughs> and they don't take sick days. <laughs> so if you could share a meal with any three people alive or dead, who would they be and why? Oh, oh, mm. <laughs> uh, probably Thomas Paine, uh, Rand Paul. Oh, Rand or Ron? you know, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Ron. Um, okay, and uh, and probably my dad. Those would probably be the three. For obvious reasons, I feel like. <laughs> um, pretty good, solid choices, I feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, you know, my political views are the same as my farming views. Yeah. Just, to, I mean, I'm not going to get into politics, but that's, that's you know, that's kind of how I feel. You know, I don't, this past year, I didn't take any subsidies off my row crop land. Uh, you know, they, I did for some reason get money deposited in my account for the, from the, oh, the stainless bill or whatever, you know, for me and my wife. Oh, and my the kids, COVID relief. Really. Yeah. 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 All that bull. Yeah. That, that, that money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tell us how you feel. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I don't, I don't take any, I don't take any of that crap. I don't, you know, this year, all my cover crops, I paid for myself out of my own pocket. So that's important too. You know, guys are like, oh, he must be doing cover crops because the government pays for him. No, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't use I don't use cover crops because government pays for them. Um, and I don't I don't take any cost share on on cover crop seed. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I thought you were gonna get me fired up there for a second. Well, if you want to get fired up, go ahead. Don't let me stop you. <laughs> nope. Next question. <laughs> okay. Well, you, it may give you a good chance to get fired up. If you were in charge, we're just going to put you in charge of, of whatever. What's the first change oh, you're yeah. going to make? Uh, if I was in charge of the Department of Agriculture, if I was in the president, or what are you talking about? Sure, you pick. <laughs> okay. How much if power do you want to have, Mac? <laughs> Give it all to me, buddy. Uh, if I was the president, my one job would be not take my check and do nothing and try to take away all regulation I possibly can. Um, that way to not restrict small businesses. Um, so yeah, I would pretty much do er nothing and suppress everything I could through the executive power. I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, if I was make the government small my, again, yes, make, well, yeah, make the government small again or make the government back to the Constitution again or something. Yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah. coming on those lines. <laughs> um, that makes and, sense. And uh, also, if I, was, yeah, if I was in charge of the Department of Agriculture, I'd probably shut that branch down because it's pretty much useless like every other branch. Well said, sir. Well said. <laughs> so we are kind of coming toward the end of our time today. And um, the thing we've started doing is 
we'll turn the tables. It's your turn. You can. Uh, do you have any question? Anything you'd like to ask either me or CK real quick? Yeah, I do. Uh, how do you guys feel about white cattle? I think that any colored cattle is uh, is a good color. I I think that they are all red and meaty on the inside. Right. Maybe a little more heat tolerant for your region too. So. Anything else? I, I think mean, a lot what of, about life? I think a lot of the industries got caught up in color. Um, yeah. Got caught up in color and tried to breed for color and breed for appearance and and not necessarily breed for things that are important like fertility and feed efficiency and low input cost. Right. Right. No, I, I see that. I can see that. Um, yeah. How, how about, I mean, do you say that now? Are you, are you, I mean, I know you get pretty warm in the summer, don't you? I mean, are you for more slit cattle or haired cattle or what do you kind of feel about that? I prefer my cattle to slick off in the late spring. And that's one thing I'm going to start. That's one thing I'm really going to take note of this year is, is the uniformity of hair coats and the uniformity of when they shed and because mm. early shedding is a good indicator of fertility and hormonal balance. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's kind of where I'm kind of going to. I want my animals to be more uniform. I don't like to have one cow that's larger than all the others or one cow that's hair than all the others. I want more. And maybe that's not, maybe that's another aspect that maybe I need to work on mentally because I'm trying to put my stuff in a box. You know, I, I just feel like we always try to put nature in a box, you know, and maybe we need to think outside right. the box, but um that that's that's definitely a that's definitely that's a hour long that's an hour long question for me you know it you know really i have i have animals that have pretty heavy hair coats throughout the summer and they do just as good as my split cattle um and they're from the same breed i mean i you know you know this i race i race south yeah yeah and then i've got commercial cattle too so i think um yeah yeah, but you think about that from a physiological aspect, like let's say dogs. You you have dogs who people shave their dogs right in the summertime, and I think sometimes that's a no no because their coats are there and they actually, if you let them, they can shed that heat just as well as an animal that has slicked hair. And so I think it's almost like a common misconception that because they have fur or longer hair they're not going to be as heat tolerant as something that's slicked back. And that doesn't necessarily mean that because the continental breeds, like they're just not as, as heat tolerant as these Brahmin cattle or these Indica cattle. Right. So, cause they right. don't have that thick skin. And so I think we have to look at it as more of a, like a physiological reason. And like, what does that actually do? That actually is a protective barrier to help them either wick the, the heat better or, um, you know, not, not retain it as much. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I've not really thought about like in that in that kind of I haven't really thought about in that way. You know, that's a good point. You know, um, I, cause I've noticed that on my I've got black cattle that right <laughs> I've got commercial cattle that do just as good in the heat as some of my red cattle do or white. Um, you know, and and I think that you know we just need to maybe instead of looking for individual traits, maybe we need to look at the individual animals itself yeah. the animal itself, not what it looks like not how it does i mean but there is one thing that is pretty consistent i feel like this personally 
you know, animals going to eat what approximately 10% of their body weight a day. So I don't want to, you know, an 1800 pound cow, <laughs> you know, um, right. Or even a 50 more groceries. Pound cow. Right. Yeah. That just, that's going to take more and, uh, to feed. So I think there is, like I said, yeah, like we were just talking about, I think it's a based upon the animal itself, not maybe based upon what you're looking for in the animal. <clears throat> Good solid advice. So, uh, yeah, is, is there is there anything new that's going on with you, Brian? Are you got, are you working on anything, or or is there anything new that you want to share with me or your or your listeners? Oh, I guess uh, I've got a uh, got a high school student that's uh, starting kind of on a a work share program, not a not a job shadowing thing. Um, young man that's been interested in agriculture. Um, I actually, his aunt uh, was in my class, so it's it's kind of a neat opportunity. We spent a couple hours together yesterday, and uh, by the time this airs, we'll hopefully he'll have been around for a month, and uh, hopefully he turns out good. Um, yeah, see, I've never had good luck with <laughs> with stuff like that. I've had a few interns in the past, and they they end up just not showing up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, you know, well, my well, farm doesn't well, have see, he's, he's well yeah. recommended and he's still so far pretty reliable. Good, good. That's hard to find. It's very hard to find. And, you know, like I said, you know, earlier, you know, maybe not, we have to work hard at certain times, you know, but I really feel like maybe we, we overwork ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? Like I look at some farmers that farm, you know, four or 5,000 acres. And they just look like crap constantly because they're under so much stress. Have you mm -hmm. noticed that? And, yeah. well, you know, the, there was a myth for a long time that, and it, it's really prevalent here because of the culture and, you know, the types of people that settled in this area that you just have to work harder. You know, yeah. Just, mm -hmm. just keep working. Just keep working hard. Put in more hours. Stay busy all the time. Got to be doing yeah. something all the time. Just put in more hours. And yeah. I don't think that works. No, I don't you think so either. I mean, you got to have a quality of life, you know? Absolutely. And, and I think I had that thought too when you said you pushed back your calving date and you're not doing it in the rain anymore. And I was like, that must be so much better because the most miserable thing I can remember when calving out cows, it was in the rain. That was the worst thing. And I could do it in the snow. I could do it in the dead heat of the summer, but in the rain, it's miserable. So I have to think your mindset is a little bit better because you're not dealing with calves hitting, the, hitting this muddy pasture and everything else. The mess I oh yeah. There's some issues with that. I mean, I, you know, a lot of guys make fun of me because they're like, oh, you have a you have a moisture problem. Well, you know, everyone in their own environment restricts their soul health. Like, you know, what, yeah. I mean, I'm close to Michael Thompson, you know, I mean, he's pretty dry. And, uh, you know, he has a hard time getting stuff to come up sometimes because it's so dry, he can't get germination on on cover crops. And I'm complete opposite. Like, you know, last year I planted one farm three times because excessive rain. And then come mm -hmm. June 1st, after June 1st, we cut off. I mean, we didn't have rain for like 80-some days. So um, it's just, it's it's very hard. One thing about, it, it's so hard to row crop. And that's why I am wanting to get away from work. When my land's paid off, 
I want to have way more animals in one herd than I do a bunch of row crop fields. That's kind of one of my goals in my farm. That sounds great. Well, Mac, it's it's been a really great conversation today, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. So where can we find you on social media, and is there any website or product um, that you want to take a chance to give a shout-out to or talk about real quick? <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, you can reach me on face at Facebook, uh, Macaulay Kincaid. I'll spell it out for you. M-A-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And then Kincaid is K-I-N-C-A-I-D. That's where I'm probably the most, uh, that's probably where I probably have the most time for is Facebook. Um, and I give the most thought to, I don't, I'm not really huge on social media. And then also I'll be speaking at a uh, green cover seat in Iola, Kansas, uh, on March 6th and 7th, I believe. That's the new days. I'll be one of the keynote speakers there. And then I've also got a few other gigs lined up at some cattlemen associations and things like that that you might be able to catch me on the local level. That sounds great, Macaulay. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. CK, if you would, please take us out. All right. Thank you. We appreciate it. This is Ranching Reboot with Red Hills Rancher and your favorite host, CK. And our young regenerative farmer of the year congratulations and we'll hope to hear from you again soon <laughs>